Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. A law banning most abortions went into effect in Texas earlier this month. On today's show, we examine the impact of this law on reproductive health care providers in Colorado. And we talk with wheelchair rugby silver medalist Adam Scaturro about his 2020 Paralympic journey and the growing popularity of adaptive sports. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. A Texas law banning most abortions after six weeks of pregnancy went into effect at the beginning of the month. This is likely to force many Texans who need abortion care to seek it outside their home state, including in Colorado. Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains, which oversees clinics in Colorado, New Mexico, Southern Nevada, and Wyoming, is stepping up to help a wave of new patients. But clinics are feeling the strain. Adrienne Manzanares is the Chief Experience Officer for Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains. She joins us now to talk about how the Texas law is impacting abortion care in Colorado and across the West. Adrienne, thank you so much for talking with us. You bet, Erin. It's nice to be here. Well, let's get into this Texas law. For people who aren't familiar with it, briefly describe what it does and how does it restrict um, both abortion care and reproductive health care? Yeah, it is an unusual law for sure. We see lots of types of restrictions in different states to patients receiving abortion care. And this one is really shocking in two ways. One is that it makes it illegal for a provider to provide health care to a person who's been pregnant for longer than six weeks. And for any person who's ever been pregnant, you, you have your own story of when you found out you were pregnant, how you found out you were pregnant. Six weeks is a very short amount of time for what's called gestational age. There's no scientific information behind it. Most people don't even know they're pregnant at that point. So that's, that's an all, all out ban for most patients in Texas to receive the care they need. So that's one thing that it does. And then this other piece is Um, truly unheard of, and I think has a lot of people, rightly so, very, very concerned. It, in practice, deputizes any citizen in Texas to sue a person that they believe, and there's a quote here around aiding and abetting a person receiving an abortion care. So that's not the patient, but what it could allow anybody in Texas to do if they believe an abortion after six weeks has occurred is sue any person who helped that patient. It could be a staff member within a health center. It could be a provider, could be a spouse, could be a parent. Um, there's concerns that, you know, Lyft drivers who take a patient to a healthcare procedure may also be under this curtain of a law. And not only does it allow someone to sue, like kind of deputize, deputizing citizens, but it puts a dollar amount to it. There's a $10,000 reward for this kind of just unheard of approach to banning health care. Well, I have to ask, after the Supreme Court last week decided not to block this legislation, uh, what went through your mind and the minds of your colleagues after this bill was, you know, allowed to become law and go into effect? 
Yeah, it was a range of emotions. I think many of us were very devastated. We felt incredibly abandoned by the Supreme Court. And again, there's these nuances that are, um, I I don't know how many times we can use this word in the past 18 months, but truly unprecedented. So these are things we have not seen before. And in the Supreme Court's decision not to rule on this um, ban in Texas, they didn't look at whether or not it was constitutional or not. I think anybody could take a look at this and say, this is not constitutional. You're all about kind of banning someone's right to seek health care. What they decided to do was to um, move it aside and, and kind of grant the, the regular course of courts to, to, to rule on the legality of the ban. So in practice, what that would mean is that someone would have to break the law and then be sued And then that would go to whatever level of district court and move through the court systems before the Supreme Court would take a look at it. And that was shocking for a lot of us because no one wants to break the law. There isn't a provider that's connected to Planned Parenthoods or independent care providers in Texas that's going to deliberately break the law. That's not how we operate that we you know, we go under the legal regulations of every state. And so that was very devastating to hear. I think many of us felt abandoned and incredibly disappointed. Have you been seeing more patients from Texas uh, since the law was passed? We have, particularly in our health centers in Albuquerque and in Santa Fe and New Mexico. Um, You know, people are driving from across Texas to get to those places. But we also see Texas patients in our Fort Collins health center. Even we have a health center in Greeley and Denver. And I was just talking to a health center manager in Las Vegas, Nevada, who said that one of our patients was able to save enough money to get on an airplane to go seek her health care. What kind of support do you give to these patients? We've got people from Texas and from all over the country who are donating to what's called abortion care funds. And those funds are awesome. They're incredibly flexible. So if people just donate to those funds, depending on what the patient needs, we're able to provide. So for some patients, that could be gas money. People driving from Texas often have to fill up their tanks twice to get to where they're going, which is, again, unheard of and really disappointing given the high prices of gas this summer. Um, So people need gas money. We have patients who arrive and they can't afford the entire healthcare provision. Maybe they're also wanting to get on birth control or get STI, sexually transmitted infection testing or treatment. We wanna make sure that that patient gets all the care that they need. And so these funds can help support those costs as well. And um, many of our patients, sometimes about half of our patients are already parents. And so they're making a decision to receive abortion care because they want to space their children, they want to plan for their for their families, and if they're living in poverty or they're just struggling economically, we've seen patients that are able to just get their kids some food, get child care. We had a patient who came into Albuquerque and she was so excited because she was afraid that her kid, oh, I'm going to cry. She was afraid that her kids weren't going to be able to eat that night because they had to put all their money into the gas to get them home to Texas. And she was just so excited and just crying because we were able to get some food for those kiddos to get home. We have heard so much throughout the pandemic uh, about how overwhelmed and exhausted clinics and hospitals and healthcare workers are. How have you felt the impact at, with Planned Parenthood services? Yeah, I think that's important for everyone to remember and understand we are still operating in the middle of a pandemic. And it's you know, it's a hot summer in the Southwest right now. We've got everybody wearing masks, people trying to figure out all of the safety protocols and precautions that we already have in our health centers. And 
We are not yet seeing high levels of vaccination rates for COVID. We, the Delta variant has many people um, disappointed that we're not out of this pandemic yet. And so in operating in just normal, normal, new normal pandemic times, we're already feeling the weight of um, and the pressure of providing health care. Many of our providers um, are, whether they're just exhausted or now wanting to just take a break, take that vacation, take that time off that they so deserve. So our staffing levels are a little low. We're always hiring and training excellent um, health care providers. And many folks didn't sign up to work 18 months in a pandemic. So if you think about that strain and pressure already, and in our communities right now, all across Colorado, as I said, New Mexico and Southern Nevada, the demand for our healthcare is already very high. So we've got lots of folks who are wanting to get their well women exam or coming in and do their annual. Maybe they need to refill their birth control or, as I said, get tested for STIs or get some treatment there. So um, our, wait, our, our wait out was a little longer than I had wanted already. And then you put on top this, this crisis that's occurring in Texas and those folks coming in. And there's a lot of compassion exhaustion, I would say. From our employees, for sure. We're talking with Adrian Manzanares with Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains about the new abortion law in Texas and its potential impact here. On Thursday, the Justice Department filed a lawsuit against Texas. They say the law is unconstitutional. They're seeking an injunction to block its enforcement. What are your expectations around the outcome of this lawsuit? Oh, Erin, I have learned a long time ago not to try to make any kind of predictions when it comes to jurisprudence. I will say, while I can't make a prediction, I have a tremendous amount of hope. And I think what this, um, the filing on Thursday, first of all, I think many of us breathe a sigh of relief that there is a legal backstop to um, unconstitutional bans as they come up in different states. So that was a much needed announcement. Um, we're very heartened to see that President Biden and the Department of Justice is really bringing the full might of the federal government. And what that does is it can protect Texans from this dangerous and unjust law. So again, while I can't make any predictions, we are all very hopeful that this will help to restore um, people in Texas access to the health care that they need. Colorado is considered to be somewhat of a haven for abortion care and reproductive health care. Uh, but there have been efforts to pass anti-abortion bills in the legislature in recent years and, you know, getting that on the Colorado ballot. Have you seen reproductive health care become more of a polarizing issue in Colorado throughout the years? How has that changed? Yeah, that's a great question. I was um, talking to another colleague of mine and kind of looking back on the days when I first joined Planned Parenthood on the board of trustees about 13 years ago. And it was awesome. We had Republicans on the board, independent folks. We had donors who identified from various, you know, different political backgrounds. And I, I really miss those times because we were able to engage in a kind of nonpartisan, not even bipartisan, but a nonpartisan conversation about how to provide health care. And unfortunately, in contemporary times, those days are gone and abortion care has become so incredibly polarizing politically, which makes these that much more harmful and the level of shame and stigma and in fact, terror, I think that especially people in Texas are feeling now because there is such a political um, agenda behind people's ability to get health care. And so, yes, we see that in the state of Colorado. Unfortunately, every legislative session, there are absurd, hateful, 
bills that are introduced that again, not rooted in science that whose sole purpose is to create a splash to attempt to take away people's privacy to their own healthcare. And we go in and we beat them over and over again. And we do that because we have champions that are elected into the state house and Senate in Colorado. And those champions believe deeply in healthcare. And so while it is frustrating and expensive and a huge miss, I think use of resources, we're able to kind of beat back those really bad bills at the state Capitol every year in Colorado. And Erin, you mentioned the ballot. So again, another misuse, huge amounts of, of energy goes into beating these ballots that over and over again, people in Colorado have said, we are not going to debate whether or not abortion care is legal in Colorado. Everybody should have access to this care. And so it's a distraction. I think it's incredibly polarizing. It can start to rip apart families themselves, certainly the political narrative gets that much more divisive. And at the end of the day, what we are here to do at Planned Parenthood is to serve patients. We want people to always know no matter what, our doors are open, no matter what's happening that they're reading about in the news or that they're hearing about or they're seeing over on social media, that political divisiveness has no place in healthcare. Adrian Monsonaris is the Chief Experience Officer for Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains. Adrian, thank you so much for talking with us. You bet, Erin. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for the time. Cap and trade policy allows companies to buy and sell rights to emit greenhouse gases. And when the state charges companies for the emissions they put out, that's a pollution tax. Those are just two pieces of the carbon economy, which is the idea of using financial incentives to get companies in the private sector to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. But what does that mean in practice? And what does it have to do with greenhouse gas reduction efforts in Colorado? We'll be talking with an expert on the carbon economy on the show later this week, and we want to hear what questions you have about putting a price tag on carbon emissions. You can leave us a voicemail at 970-703-4081. Again, that's 970-703-4081. Send us an email at coloradoedition at kunc.org or tweet your question to our handle at KUNC. Reach out by Wednesday morning so we can consider your questions for the show. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. The 2020 Paralympic Games in Tokyo wrapped up on September 5th, and Team USA came away with 104 medals. While some Paralympic sports like track and swimming closely mirror Olympic sports in terms of style and play, other sports like goalball, sitting volleyball, and wheelchair rugby have taken on a unique identity only to be found at the Paralympic level. Adam Scaturro grew up in Lakewood, west of Denver, and he's a member of the Paralympic wheelchair rugby team that took the silver medal this year in Tokyo. He joins us now to discuss his athletic journey, adaptive sports, and the future of the Paralympic Games. Adam, thanks so much for talking with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. For people who have never watched, what exactly is wheelchair rugby? <laughs> well, the history of wheelchair rugby is interesting. It started in 1977 up in Canada by a couple quadriplegics who were looking for an outlet or a sport to play 
based on their disability. You know, most of the sports at that point for people in wheelchairs were sports that they couldn't quite do basketball and sled hockey and some of those things. So they were just trying to come be creative and come up with a, a neat sport. You know, the conception of rugby came. Um, it was originally called murder ball and it was uh, four guys versus four guys on a basketball court that had a ball in their lap. And the whole goal was to get it over the goal line while the other team was trying to stop them. Well, it ended up being so popular that back in 1981, I want to say, it was actually brought to the United States where it started developing its own true sense of sport. And, you know, they started putting in new rules and equipment you could use to where the goal was, yes, to get the ball inbounded from a baseline, get it across half court in a certain amount of time, and then score that goal by just crossing the line with the ball in your lap. And that would be considered one try. You know, it, it, it's really like any other sport that you've ever seen. It's maybe a hybrid of hockey and basketball put together. But the idea is to involve quadriplegics in their own sport. And how they did that is they would take the four players that were on one team on the court out of a time and implement a point system. Points vary from how much function you have as a quadriplegic. And it goes from 0.5 to 3.5 and half point increments. Uh, a 0.5 would be someone who maybe doesn't have so much function in their arms and can't use their chair as well, all the way up to 3.5, which is somebody who has extreme amount of function, but a little bit of limitations in all four areas of their legs and hands and arms and stuff like that. And then out of those four players, you can only put eight points on the court. You mentioned murder ball. Uh, the group of players on Team USA has often been called the murder ball generation because a lot of them were inspired to play wheelchair rugby after watching that uh, 2004 documentary film. Um, tell us a bit about the role of the film in promoting the sport and, and encouraging others to play. I happened to start the sport before that documentary was out. And so I got to really see what rugby was like before and then what the movie and documentary Murderball did for the sport after. And it, 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 it really did a whole lot. I mean, the community was already pretty tight and big back before 2004 when we were playing rugby. It was a great outlet for us. It was a great opportunity for us to become independent as individuals. But it kind of st stayed there and stopped there. The technology back in the day, some people were still in their everyday chairs trying to play the game. Or, but after Murderball... It became not only a sport that every quadriplegic at least tried or looked at, but, you know, chair manufacturers started jumping on board and creating chairs and the technology for the sport. So it could evolve into a sport that was not just for people with disabilities, you know, quadriplegics in particular, but for everybody out in society to look at and really enjoy. Um, so the movie Murderball, it just it, it pole vaulted our sport into society to such great lengths that, you know, the Paralympics, it's one of the most favorited Paralympic sport there is now. Now, how did you first get involved? Uh, you mentioned that it happened before the documentary came out. Um, was it part of your rehabilitation after undergoing a spinal injury? So, no, it, it could have been, and I wish I would have used it as that. Actually, I was in high school when I got hurt, and it was presented to me by a gentleman named Brad Mickelson, who was kind of like the godfather of wheelchair rugby in America. And he came into my, you know, my hospital room and kind of pitched it to me a little bit, but being in high school and still not knowing what I needed to do in life and still thinking I would walk out of the hospital, I kind of brushed it aside. Um, about two years after, I was really starting to come into my own, starting to want to leave mom's house, you know, to be out on the world on my own and take care of myself. So I decided to look at the sport of wheelchair rugby. Well, after my first practice, I realized, okay, 
not only is this a good outlet for me, but this is a great opportunity for me to grow, learn, and become a better quadriplegic and a stronger quadriplegic at an independent level than I've ever been. Well, Colorado is a leading state in adaptive sports programs. It's home to the National Sports Center for the Disabled, uh, the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, numerous other similar organizations. And Colorado is also a very athletic state known for an active lifestyle. I'm wondering if living here has had any impact on your journey as an athlete uh, or afforded you opportunities that might be hard to come by elsewhere. Well, I think that's a good point. And well, I think it's very true. Um, a lot of Team USA, since I've been on it since 2009, has been, you know, comprised of people from Colorado, Arizona, maybe a little bit California, but in the areas where and states where people are most active. You know, there's been several players here from Colorado that I've played on Team USA with. You're right. A lot of it is because of how society in our state is and being so active and wanting to get out and do stuff. And when you have limitations because of a disability and stuff, you want to find those opportunities to get out and do things. And that's where rugby was such a perfect fit for a lot of people. The funny thing is, is you try to get people because this sport was developed for quadriplegics, but you get paraplegics that want to jump in and play and even able-bodied people. And they're like, oh, yeah, this is going to be great. And in their mind, they're thinking we're going against a bunch of quadriplegics. This isn't going to be very hard. And then they just get smoked by us. You know, we beat them up pretty bad. And it's really, really neat being a quadriplegic and kind of kicking the butt of able-bodied people and paraplegics and people with so much more function than we have. It levels the playing field. We are talking to Adam Scaturro, member of the USA wheelchair rugby team. Adam, I want to turn to this year's Paralympics. The USA beat their rival Canada in the semifinals, but then lost to Great Britain in the gold medal match. Tell us a little bit about that game and what happened on the court. Well, man, still kind of fresh with me, only a couple weeks out. Uh, Still something that, to me as an athlete, is very disappointing and not the way I wanted to go, but at the same time, really neat to see. And I'll tell you why it was neat to see. Because we've had so much success here in the U.S. with wheelchair rugby. We've really developed the game for the world. Um, And, you know, we've won more medals than any other country in the world in terms of, you know, uh, at the Paralympic level and even world championship level. And yet other countries have been trying to catch up. You know, Europe has never had a team that's even got a medal before in the Paralympics wheelchair rugby. So, and even though I'm talking about us losing, to see Great Britain be the team who won gold was a special moment for everybody in the sport because it just shows how far along the world has taken this sport and how much growth it has it has had over the past 20 years since it's been in the Paralympic Games. However, the game, it, it was tough. You know, we had been on a 30-plus game-winning streak as a team, and then COVID hit. And, man, it kind of pulled us back a little bit. However, being the team that we are, I think we came out and we did very well to get to that gold medal match. But GB was just a little bit more hungry, a little bit smarter, and had everything kind of clicking for them at that moment to where they got gold. Can you tell us a bit about the team dynamic and your relationship with other players? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, the common thing you'll hear from anybody who's asked that question is, well, team is like a family and, you know, we're dysfunctional just like a family and have the goods and bads. And that's 100% correct with this team as well. But I would say taken to even the next level. I've never been with a team in all of my years on USA or even before USA where there was a group of guys who really sacrificed who they were as individuals to 
come together for the greater good of the team, no matter what that meant, no matter less playing time, having to do certain things in practice that they're not used to, or even different jobs that were given to them, just stepping up and getting the, and getting it done for the team. I've, I've, I've never been around guys who not only do I love as a family, but I really know almost everything about. Our sports psychologist does a really good job making us stay open to everybody and allowing everybody their platform to speak on the team in a controlled, safe environment. And because of that, we just grew so tight. And it's, it's a group of guys I will never forget and will always call my family and my friends the rest of my life. Lastly, I wanted to ask about viewership of the 2020 Paralympics. According to recent reports, uh, it was estimated to be four times higher than the Paralympics in 2016. Why do you think that is? And how can we keep growing and promoting Paralympic sports? You know, it's a great question. And I'm a little dumbfounded myself after hearing, you know, that statistic, which I heard a couple of days ago on, on, man, that is such a huge step forward. I think there's certain things to it. I think the biggest thing is the social awareness of Paralympic sports. The more that it's out there in society and people are seeing it, I think the more that they want to continue to follow it and see where it kind of leads because Paralympic sports for all intents and purposes, yes, are, are about people with disabilities, but about the people who want to invest themselves so much into something that they, that it makes the greatest thing out there for their sport and their um, opportunity. And, and, and it's, and it's just, so neat to see, you know, so I, I will say a lot of it is just a social awareness factor. It's on social media more, you know, having NBC pick it up and give us extra hours and broadcast it more in prime time really gives it to it. But I also think that has something to do and with our country and the state that it's at now, you know, there's so much division and not enough unification in certain areas that you get everybody who kind of wants to unify themselves and this country together and what better way to do it than behind sports and team usa and i think that the paralympics really gave this this country an opportunity to do that adam scaturo member of the usa wheelchair rugby team adam thank you so much for talking with us today absolutely thank you guys for your time that's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, the number of COVID tests done every day in the state has risen about 30% since last month. In Larimer County, a surge in demand has led county leaders to open two new community testing sites. We'll get the latest on those new testing centers and what's driving the demand. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.